As you're getting settled, let me encourage you to get your Bibles and turn to Acts 15. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 924. I want to begin this morning uh, a few verses ahead of our passage, Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. But let me ask you, what are you looking for in a church? Good theology and preaching? Maybe you want a good children's and youth ministry. Maybe you're looking for people in your stage of life, people who understand your unique challenges. Maybe what you really want is a church on mission, right? a church not focused on itself, but focused on the unsaved and the unchurched. Maybe you want a church with a, a hip pastor like me. Or maybe you want a, a small congregation singing the old hymns. Well, this morning's sermon is called Encouragement for the Tired. It's not a bad title. The uh, saints in Antioch were tired of waiting whether or not they were going to have to be circumcised in order to enter the kingdom of God. They were encouraged to find out, in fact, they didn't have to be. But I think maybe if I could change the title of this morning's sermon, I, I might try this. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's so easy to think the Christian life in general and the Christian church in particular is about you. It's tempting to see the church as something like the Costco of spirituality. We provide large amounts of high-quality products that you need to enjoy the Christian life. From music to small groups, we have it all, minus the $1.50 hot dogs. 
But the best church with all the best stuff has nothing if it doesn't have love. 1 Corinthians 13.1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Everything that you want from the church may be entirely appropriate. And everything you do for God may be really, really good. But if it is not done without Christ-centered and Christ-bought love, the Holy Spirit says it's worthless. And when the first doctrinal controversy hit the church in the first century, the final word is, don't forget to love. And so I want to show you today that, that real freedom leads to faithful churches to radical love. Real freedom leads faithful churches to radical love. And that's what our passage is teaching. Now, let me remind you, if you're, especially if you're new to us, let me remind you where we've been. It's the first century, less than 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the church is growing. The church is growing fast. And the church is growing with, with Gentiles. And Paul and Barnabas are leading the way, planting churches throughout the regions of Cilicia and and, and Galatia, modern-day Turkey. But Jewish background believers in Judea are shell-shocked when they really come to grips with the reality that the church that's growing is largely ethnically a Gentile church. I mean, that's where the fruit now is among Gentile communities. And these Jewish background believers, at least I'm going to call them believers right now, they wanted a largely Jewish religion. They, they wanted Christianity, but they wanted Jewish Christianity. And so, when they saw Antioch, which is northwest of Jerusalem, when they saw Antioch becoming this, this hub of ethnic Gentile Christianity, some in Judea, apparently not under the authority of the Jerusalem church, at least not without instructions from the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem, they went to Antioch, and they started preaching there, and they're preaching, well, we don't have to guess what they were saying, Acts 15.1. Right? This was their, their message. I mean, imagine if this was like the main idea for today's sermon. Unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Not a way to grow a church. Now, Paul knew that this teaching undermined the gospel. And so Paul and Barnabas, who have already wrestled with this theological idea, they begin uh, addressing the issue in Antioch, but the elders in Antioch decide that the best thing to do is to send a, a contingent up to Jerusalem and to seek the, the counsel and the wisdom of the elders and the apostles and really the entire church in Jerusalem. And when Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem, the church calls the, the elders together, and uh, with the elders are, are apostles, and they meet, and they talk, and they pray, and they finally reach a conclusion. And the conclusion 
is simple. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and entrance into the kingdom of God does not differ if you are of a Jewish background or an ethnically Gentile background. It doesn't matter. Salvation is by grace alone, through, through faith alone, verse 11. And this means that Gentile believers, by virtue of faith in Christ, they are the people of God. People of God being an expression that was so, throughout so much of history, reserved for Israel. And so to say that the Gentiles, by virtue of their faith, are people of God, that's a big deal, right? And so they come to that conclusion. They don't need to be circumcised. They are not under the law. And so they should not be told, they should not be burdened with this idea that to enter the kingdom of God, you first have to become Jewish. That's the conclusion summarized in verse 19. Now, in our passage, which starts in verse 22, what happens is the congregation in Jerusalem with the elders and the apostles, they agree that they're going to send a letter to the churches in, in Antioch. Right now, the, the church is actually in Antioch. There's churches in Syria, just south of Antioch. There's churches in Cilicia, just north of Antioch. And they're going to send this one letter. We call it a circular letter. Letter. It's going to go to Antioch, and it's going to report. It's going to announce that adherence to the law is not required for entrance into the kingdom of God. Now, the letter includes four exhortations, and in verse 28, they're called requirements. Now, requirements is a strong word. I think we would better understand them as soft requirements. I only say this because in verse 29, the letter doesn't follow up saying that they must do these things. It follows up saying it is, it is well to do these things. It would be good to do these things. Well, I'll come back to that in a moment. But that's what happened. And here's the main idea again. Real freedom leads faithful churches to radical love. And that's basically the outline of the sermon. Right? So let's talk about real freedom for a moment. Because that's what these believers in Antioch and in this region, that's what they understood themselves to now have in Christ. Real freedom. Right after the church in Jerusalem concluded that converts to Christianity don't need circumcision, they sent that letter up to all those churches the content of the letter is in verses 23 through 29. The heart of the letter is in verse 28. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Now, the, the, the key right now is no greater burden. Right? Remember when James said in verse 19 that we were not to trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We're not to trouble you. Right? We don't want to live, we, we, we want to remove burdens from you. We don't want to add burdens to you. And so being circumcised, especially as an adult, a burden. Trouble. But they say Christ frees us from the law. Romans 6:14, you are not under the law, but under grace. That's real freedom. Right? So the church in Jerusalem rightly concluded that our standing before God is not based upon our successful keeping of Old Testament commandments. I can't earn my way into God's presence as so many Jews in the first century understood. As I said last week, I've got, I've got nothing left to prove. 
as a Christian. Jesus proved it already in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and in his powerful resurrection. This is a letter communicating there's no greater burden now. We don't want to trouble you with the law. Now, that doesn't mean the Old Testament law is unimportant. And I want to be really clear about that. We cannot disregard the Old Testament. If the Old Testament was the Bible of Jesus, and if it was the Bible of the earliest Christians as we find recorded in the, the New Testament, then we must rely upon it. We must study it. We must treasure it, and we must understand it through the lens of Jesus Christ. Obedience to the law is not a requirement for salvation, but a proper understanding of the law is a requirement for sanctification. To grow in holiness, you must wrestle with the meaning and implications of the Old Testament. Now, let me explain how I can say we are free from the law when it comes to our salvation and at the same time say the law is required for our sanctification. I recognize in, in one sense I'm going off a little bit on a rabbit trail, but I also recognize that there are many in Christianity today who are proposing that we don't really need the Old Testament. Just focus on Jesus, uh, his words, maybe Paul's words. We don't need all this hard-to-understand Old Testament. And I don't think that's at all what the saints in Jerusalem were communicating when they were communicating that the Gentiles are free from the law. So let me explain how I say we are free from the law when it comes to our salvation and at the same time that the law is required for our sanctification. Now let's take Peter as an example. The apostle Peter was at Jerusalem, when this conclusion was reached, that obedience to the law is not a requirement for salvation, he knew that we are not under the law but under grace. And when Peter challenged early Christians to honor Jesus with their lives, where did he take them? He took them to the Old Testament. He took them to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, which he cited in his letter, 1 Peter, where the Holy Spirit says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter cited the Old Testament. That's a command in 1 Peter from Old Testament law. But you say, Aaron, I'm not under law, I am under grace. So what does the Leviticus 11.44 and this command to be holy have to do with me as a Christian? Well, let me show you. I'll say three things very quickly. First, remember Jesus is the only one who ever obeyed that command perfectly. Only Jesus is the perfect Son of God. Only Jesus is perfectly holy. He's the only one who ever perfectly obeyed Leviticus 11.44, cited by Peter in 1 Peter. That's the first thing. Remember Jesus is the only holy one. Second, remember that in Christ... Because of his work on the cross, if you're a Christian, so I'm speaking out of Christians, in Christ, because of his work on the cross, you've been saved from the wrath of God you deserve for your unholiness. That's helpful to know. Number three, remember that in Christ, 
Christian, you are now filled with the Holy Spirit so that by God's grace, you can be holy. You can live a a holy life. You are free, freed from the law to pursue holiness in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God the Father. So, no, holiness doesn't save you. You are free from the law, but having been freed, you will pursue holiness in Christ. All right, I could basically go and give you about 600 more examples of this process. Let me give you one more. Let's talk about circumcision. Painful topic. Let's talk about it anyway. Circumcision is a part of the Old Testament law. The boys of Israel were physically circumcised to show quite dramatically that really all of the nation was uh, set aside, consecrated to God. This was a visible marker that Israel is the children of the promise, the people identified by the Lord to live for the Lord. That's what circumcision was for. Now, we know that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And you rightly point out, ah, whatever that means, I'm not under the law, I am under grace. So what do I do with this command to be circumcised? All right, let's do it again. First, remember Only Jesus lived a life of perfect consecration to God his Father. Only Jesus lived perfectly for the glory of God. And it's not just that Jesus had a circumcised body, though of course he did, but Jesus had what the Old Testament also refers to as a circumcised heart. Jesus absolutely, every day, lived righteously before other people and ultimately before God his Father. Second, remember that in Christ, again, speaking now to Christians, if you're not a believer here this morning, I'm glad you're here. You're listening in on how we wrestle with difficult texts in the Bible so that we can understand how better to follow the Lord that that we worship. All right? Second, remember, Christian, that in Christ, because of his work for you on that cross, you are forgiven for your failure to live a consecrated life. Not one person in this room who has absolutely succeeded at living a life set apart for God. But in Christ, you're forgiven for that. Number three, remember that in Christ, you are now filled with the Holy Spirit and your heart, Christian, your heart has been circumcised, Colossians 2, 11. And now as a result, you can walk in Christ, rooted and built up in him, Colossians 2, 7. So with a circumcised heart, you can now walk in a manner that pleases the Lord. Now again, I was just in a wonderful class on Exodus this morning. Uh, I, I can't tell the whole church to be in that class. That would be not right, not enough room. But brothers and sisters, we've got to learn how to wrestle with the Old Testament. It's the Word of God. We best not just cast it aside. And it's not always easy. You kind of got to spend some time working through Old Testament passages with the Christian worldview, understanding how we are to take these passages and understand them as believers. So I spent an hour this morning just working through what are these strange laws regulating slavery in the Old Testament and, and, and regulating all sorts of violence and, and all sorts of things. And I was helped. I was equipped. 
right? It's not impossible to do. It's quite possible to do. I know that the Old Testament can be hard to understand, and I know that many people read parts of the Old Testament and say to themselves, well, if Christianity has anything to do with this, I want none of it. But the answer isn't to ignore the Old Testament. It is to do the hard work of understanding how Jesus fulfilled every page of the Old Testament. Realize how all those commands shine a light on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Freed from the law, we are now free to pursue holiness. That is real freedom. All right? Real freedom. Point number one. All right. Second, faithful churches. Faithful churches. Now, real freedom leads faithful churches to radical love. Now, why am I pointing out faithful churches? Recently, just this past week, a member of Mount Vernon came up to me and just shared with me about how a small group of her friends from a local church, not this local church, had, had left that church. And she, being concerned for them, asked her closest friend in the group, you know, well, where have you gone? And they said something like, well, we're not going to church anymore. We're kind of done with church. And our church member was appropriately surprised and disappointed and maybe even a little shocked by that. Uh, I'm not shocked by that. Uh, that has been happening. I think ever since the church was founded, there have been people leaving the church. Certainly in America, where individualism and anti-institutionalism reigns, uh, you're going to have a lot of people who are, are done with organized religion. Uh, that is uh, certainly wrong. They see the church as a hindrance to their spiritual growth. But I want you to, what I want you to see in Acts 15 is how central the local church is to God's plan. Even in the midst of this doctrinal controversy, you've got entire congregations with their sleeves rolled up, engaged vigorously in this conversation and in its resolution. So I love how the passage begins in Acts 15, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church with the whole church to choose men from among them. So, apostles were on that. I mean, if it were, again, I think I said this last week, if it were me, the apostles are enough. You know, Peter, you just take care of it. Paul, you guys got this thing. I'm, I, don't, I, I was just elected an elder last week. You guys take care of it. But no, it begins with the apostles and then the elders, but they're not alone. The whole church is in on this amazing conversation about how best to serve the church in Antioch. That's just amazing. And it's not just a, a Jerusalem thing. Look at Acts 15, verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. The believers in Antioch, they, they gathered, right? The congregation, they met together to hear the letter. They sat together under the preaching of these visiting prophets. They marveled together. They rejoiced together. They were encouraged together at the kindness of God in freeing them from the law. But I want to be a part of a gathering like that, of people who get excited and encouraged by gospel freedom. Now, maybe you're thinking, yeah, Aaron, one thing you've left out, they didn't have good books or podcasts. 
If they did, I'm not so sure they would have gathered. They would have just tuned in online. I know I'm being a little snarky. But I'm doing so recognizing that the Bible teaches the value of God's people gathering. Now let me try to, try to show you a little bit more clearly. In verse 22, Luke says it seemed good to the apostles, elders, with the whole church. Right? It seemed good to the apostles, to the elders. It seemed good to the whole church. Don't know exactly what that looked like. I mean, I tend to think it looked exactly like what we do at a church and conference. Who knows? I might be a little bit wrong. But I can't be far off. It seemed good. All right. Look at verse 25. The letter to Antioch. It actually has those same, same words. It seemed good to us. They're, they're letting the, the, the church in Antioch know, hey, church in Antioch, it seemed good to us to do this. It's not that it just seemed good to James. That would have been enough for me. You know, I would have been fine with it seemed good to Peter. But no, it, it seemed good to us. Again, just a repeat of what Luke told us in verse 22. The church decided. They made a decision. They did their best, and it seemed good to them. They talked about it. They prayed about it. It seemed good to them to send these certain men to Antioch. Now look at verse 28. The church is, is reporting the final decision about the law. And notice what the letter says. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now why not just say, and it seemed good to us. It seemed good. Why say, and it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us? Well, I think there's a couple answers. Probably both of them have some merits. One answer being, one of the ways that the congregation led by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem came to the conclusion that we're not under law but under grace is by reading and studying the Old Testament. They read and studied passages like Amos, and they concluded, ah, this has always been God's plan for the Gentiles to be the people of God. So it seemed good to the Holy Spirit who inspired Amos to write those words, and it seems good to us. Well, that makes sense to me. But I'm also struck by the reality that when the Apostle Paul, who was there that day, is writing to the Ephesians later, and he describes to the, this, this church in Ephesus what God is, is doing, the building up of the church. Paul says this. You don't need to turn there, but listen to Ephesians 2.22. Paul says the church is being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Now, think about that. A local church is being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, you may look at this building and think, well, I know how this building was built. You know, there are bricklayers and carpenters and electricians, and they're all building this building. And, and that's true, and, and all of those who are part of that are gifted, and we should be thankful for them. But that's not how Mount Vernon was built. That's not how any local church is built. Any real local church is built as a people filled with the Holy Spirit, a people in whom the Holy Spirit is working, knitting them together so that they are a fit place for the Lord. 
And so I think that when, when they report that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to do this thing, it's a way of saying, as best we can tell, we, the congregation, being filled with the Holy Spirit, are doing what we think is best to serve you. And it's not just that it seems good to us, but as a congregation being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit, we think it seems good to the Holy Spirit too. And I don't think you get that kind of thing through a podcast. I, I just don't think you get it as you're sitting lakeside reading a good Christian book. The Christian book may be a thousand times better than this particular sermon, but there's something remarkable that happens when God's people gather together and the Holy Spirit starts hammering away at us through his word, making us fit a fit place for God to dwell. And I don't understand it completely. I don't understand why in Ephesians chapter 2 it's in the present tense. But it seems like we are in the process. We're not done. We're not a finished product. But our goal is sanctification. Right? We are fully pleasing to God in Christ. But we can grow to be more pleasing to God as he fits us together through the working of his, his Holy Spirit. And so, and so if all that is true, we shouldn't be so surprised that these brothers and sisters, because in the New Testament, when we hear that word brothers in first century Greek, that was gender neutral, right? We've basically lost what gender neutral means, but in most of our English translations, it's still gender neutral, brothers and sisters. So in the early church, brothers and sisters in Jerusalem were working together to figure out who were the best men that we can send and the thing is, they had Judas, right, and Silas to choose from. They were prophets, we're told in verse 32. You think, well, that's a slam dunk. They're prophets. What conversation needs to be had? But the church is so precious. And this responsibility to pick the right individuals to go was, so, was one taken so seriously that the church got together and they prayed about it and they talked about it before finally deciding, verse 22, to select these leading men. The church is precious. And so the congregation took its time to find who were the right men for the job. And when the congregation is thinking about what to say to the church in Antioch, one of the things they want to do is elevate the leaders of the church in Antioch. The church is so precious that the saints in Jerusalem wanted to make sure how valuable Barnabas and Paul were, these leaders of the church in Antioch. And so they say in verse 26 that these are men who have risked their lives in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how did Paul and Barnabas risk, risk their lives? By preaching the gospel for the building up of the church. These were men who gave their lives for seeing congregations built and planted. And the church in Jerusalem is recognizing this and it's valuing this. And it's, it's, it's lifting up these leaders of the congregation. Why? Because in their eyes, the church is so very precious. Precious, valuable, a treasure that is priceless, the, the people of the living God. And so even today, we should treat the church with care. And I'm not saying that the church should be formal. I'm not saying it should be stuffy. I'm not saying you should wear a sport coat. Right? We shouldn't make, we should not make a deal out of nice carpet and nice chandeliers and, and pretty, pretty windows. We shouldn't make anything out of that. We should be thankful for it, but it's not the church. 
The church is the gathering of people. That's what matters, the gathering of people. And the people change as generations go by. Right? Some, members of, some people in this room have been at Mount Vernon from nearly the beginning. And for some of you, it might be your first Sunday. It's the church of the living God gathered by the Holy Spirit. Mount Vernon is a congregation of blood-bought saints. And so we are precious. So let me encourage you to treat Mount Vernon with care. How can you do this? Pray for our elders. Pray they're wise and godly and gifted to lead. Pray for our deacons that they are godly and humble and gifted to serve. Pray that they'd serve the congregation well. Pray for our members that we would volunteer with reckless abandon to meet the needs identified by the elders and by the deacons. Pray that we would volunteer, that we'd be a congregation that shows up at church and conference and, and cheerfully participates and prays and pleads with God to do a great work in this body. Get involved, right? No one's to live the Christian life alone. The church is precious and, and we are the church. Uh, I didn't check. I'm not 100% sure if we have it right now, but there is a, usually a book in the bookstall. It's by Tom Schreiner who visited with us uh, a number of months ago. He's a New Testament scholar. And he wrote a little book called Spiritual Gifts. Right? The first half is simply extraordinary. Just extraordinary. So if you're a member of Mount Vernon, and sometimes you wonder, like, what's my role? Now, I know I'm not Barsabbas. I know I'm not Silas. I'm not Paul. I'm not Barnabas. But what's my role? I know that Aaron says the church is precious, but how am I? A, where do I fit? I think that is, I mean, outside of the book of 1 Corinthians, which is better by far, that little book by Tom Schreiner, Spiritual Gifts, that first half of the book, I think is a wonderful thing. I'd encourage you to look at it. Real freedom leads faithful churches to radical love. Let's be a faithful church. That leads us to point number three, which is really the heart of the text and the heart of the sermon Radical love. Look at verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, fare well. Sound good? All right, we're done. All right, no. They knew from this letter that they were freed from the law. I want to be clear about that. Whatever is meant by these four requirements, they knew they were freed from the law. They are now under grace. That's why verse 31 is so important. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They would not have been rejoicing if it came back, oh, and by the way, you need to be circumcised. Right, so they, they took this letter to be great news. They, they did not need to obey the law to enter Christianity. They, did not, they were not under the law. Okay, that was clear, right? But what are these four requirements? What are they doing? Again, I'm calling them soft requirements for a number of reasons. But one, I think, most obvious reason is the interesting uh, phrase in verse 29. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. You'll do well. This is wise. It'd be very wise for you to heed these soft requirements. And what are they, though? 
What are these soft requirements? There's four of them. The first, abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. Right? So most probably, this is meat. Abstain from meat that has been devoted to a wooden idol in your hometown. Like abstain from that. Abstain from blood. Right? Probably related to the meat, right? Uh, don't digest blood. That is uh, going against Old Testament laws about keeping kosher. Eat bloodless meat. Similarly, abstain from what has been strangled, probably reinforcing abstain from blood because meat, a carcass that has been strangled, has not had the blood taken out of it in a way that would have been ethically palatable for a Jewish eater. And then abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, admittedly, that one just doesn't seem to fit. Right, abstaining from sexuality, let's just be clear, that's a must, right? So if anyone thought, oh, did he just say sexual immorality is a soft requirement? No, that is a must, right? So that's why this is a little bit strange. It's strange for a number of reasons. Three of these four soft requirements are clearly related to Old Testament laws, laws which the Christian is no longer under, and again, the last requirement to abstain from sexual morality, it just seems too obvious to mention. Like Christianity 101, it's like, and by the way, don't steal things. Don't hit people. You know, don't, don't, don't lie. Uh, so what's going on here? I think the text actually gives us some clues to understand how we are to read these four requirements. Look at verse 21. Right, this is from last week. But we're told why. These requirements were given. Verse 20, 21 of Acts chapter 15. For from ancient generations, so remember in verse 20, those requirements are first reported. Why these requirements? Verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he, Moses, the law, the Old Testament, is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So, in other words, Judaism, with all of its law teaching, has gone global, and it would be nearly impossible to be a Gentile Christian and to be very far from a Jewish family, a family under the law, a family trying to eat kosher, a family trying to honor God, because Moses is read everywhere, and because Jewish believers and unbelievers alike would have struggled with Christians worshiping the God of the Old Testament without following the law of the Old Testament, that would have been very puzzling, certainly to Jewish unbelievers, but can't you agree it'd be really hard for some Jewish believers as well, maybe who weren't in Jerusalem, haven't had all these conversations about the role of the law, really hard for them. Right, so that's why these requirements are given. That's a helpful clue as to what's going on. Look at verse 28. The church in Jerusalem appears to be particularly concerned about idol worship, about sacrificing meat to idols. Right, we know from other parts of the New Testament, from 1 Corinthians 10 in particular, that one of the earliest challenges for the church was how to navigate idol worship in the cities in which they lived. That was a real, a real challenge. And specifically, what to do with meat sacrificed to idols, right? Could that meat be safely eaten? Was it ethical meat? 
you know, uh, was it a sin? So it's difficult to find exact 21st century examples. You know, you go to a movie theater, there's a family-friendly movie on one side. There's a blasphemous rated R movie on the other side. Do you just not go to the theater at all? Is that just the wisest course of action for the Christian, you know? Is Aaron going to see me walking into this theater? I mean, you're thinking that. He, does he live close, close to here? Any elders around here? You know, what do I do? This is like real-life stuff. What do you know? Real-life stuff in the New Testament. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 28, Paul actually addresses a, a similar issue. I'll just read a little excerpt from it. Paul says, if someone says to you, this piece of meat has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Paul says, I do not mean your conscience, but his, his for the sake of his conscience. Paul says, don't eat the meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. All right, now, you're going to find other places in Paul's writings where Paul says, you know, you're free to eat that meat. There's a little bit of an ethical dance going on here. But Paul says, generally speaking, you know, if someone comes up to you and he's kind of upset, like, hey, this, 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 this steak has been offered to Molech, you know, it kind of bothers me. Well, for the sake of that brother who's bothered and for the sake of his conscience, not your conscience, Paul says, I trust that you know meat's meat. Whether it's been sacrificed to Molech or you know, produced by Christian ranchers in Texas. It's just a piece of meat. Your conscience should be clear. But for the sake of his conscience, Paul says, you know, don't, don't eat it. All right, so what do we got going on here? What clues do we have to understanding these four requirements? On one hand, he says, abstain from this stuff for you are surrounded by Jewish unbelievers and I would say believers who are still being saturated with the law of Moses, right? Clue number one. And clue number two, you are surrounded by idolatry, idolatry that is certainly dishonoring to God, but can be especially dishonoring to those with a Jewish background who see not merely the sexual immorality, but who see associated with idolatry, but who see this food that is so clearly not kosher. And in fact, many commentators of this text point out how ancient pagan festivals, idol festivals, they included sexual immorality. So going to a festival in and of itself, not sinful, but when that festival is associated with some sexual morality some of the time, when it's associated with this not kosher food that is so offensive to our Jewish Believing and unbelieving, friends, beware. Not because you must. You know, you're free. Not free to engage in sexual morality, but free to go to a place that, though at times has sexual immoral practices, doesn't always have those practices taking place. But just for the sake of love, stay away. You will do well to stay away. And that seems to be what the believers in Jerusalem were encouraging the believers in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia to do. Real freedom leads faithful churches to radical love. When you realize what Christ has done for you, 
how Christ has died in your place, how he has absorbed the wrath of God you deserved, as you experience the grace and mercy that God has shown you in Christ, when you realize this, you are going to, be want, you are going to want to be part of a church that mirrors the loving kindness of God in Christ our Savior. And you're going to be willing and eager even to give up your rights, if so doing, would be a blessing to others. Now let me leave you this morning with three questions for those who want to love more. If you don't want to love anymore, these questions are not for you. You've got bigger problems. But for those who want to love more, in light of this passage, let me leave you with three questions. Number one, is the gospel the engine of your love? Is the gospel the engine of your love? It's easy to hear a call to radical, sacrificial love and feel guilty that you don't love more. Your guilt may be spirit-led conviction. It could be confusion about the gospel. We aren't saved because we love. We love because we're saved. 1 John 5.10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We're not saved because we love. We love because we're saved. And I think that's why the church in Jerusalem could be so bold as to call those four abstentions requirements because they knew they had made it absolutely clear They'd sent Paul and Barnabas and a couple of prophets to make it absolutely clear that we're not saved by what we do. We're saved by what Jesus did. And so without fear of confusing the gospel, they could strongly exhort these believers, these Gentile believers, to abstain from that which they had freedom to be part of. Of course, not sexual morality, but they had freedom to be part of these pagan temples, these festivals. They had freedom, but it wasn't wise but they could be encouraged to abstain from what they were free to engage in because they knew that we don't, we're not saved because we love, but we love because we're saved. Is the gospel the engine of your love? So if you've never done it before, put your faith in Christ. If you've never done it before, trust him. Trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. Trust that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Trust that your life is nothing without him. Trust that you need him. Give your life to him. Repent of your sins. Turn to faith in Christ. Is the gospel the engine of your love? Second question. Do you ever enter the world of non-Christians? Do you ever enter the world of non-Christians? That's what the church in Jerusalem assumed the believers in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia would do. These requirements only make sense if you enter the world of non-Christians. Non-Christians will never be offended by what you do or by what you don't do unless they know you. So the assumption of the entire church in Jerusalem is that the believers in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia are actually going to be known by their neighbors. And this is an unusual challenge in 21st century America where it is possible to build Christian compounds where we don't actually spend time, significant time, getting known by or knowing our non-Christian friends and sometimes even our non-Christian family. And that's a problem for us. 
And so if you're going to have radical love as a believer, if you're going to be aware that there are times when you need to give up your rights for your witness in an unbelieving community, right, then you've actually got to be in an unbelieving community. I don't know exactly what that looks like for all of you, but it's got to look like something for all of us. Do you ever give up what you might value or what you are free to do? Do you ever give up what you might value or what you are free to do in order to enter the world of your neighbors who need the gospel? You are free. You are free in Christ to spend your time with your church family. You are free to do that. But if all of your love, if all of your love is poured out into the lives of your believing brothers and sisters in Christ, if you never really enter the world of unbelievers around you, do you really know the love of Christ? The people who influence you are the people you know care about you and love you. And this is why evangelism is so much harder and so much easier than any of us think. Evangelism is so much harder because it's so much more than simply being brave enough to tell someone in 30 seconds, you were made by God, you rebelled against him, God sent Jesus to atone for your sins, he rose from the dead, now put your faith in him. Right? I'm not saying it's super easy to give that message in 30 seconds. It takes boldness. But evangelism is so much harder than that because it's parking yourself in someone's life. Of course, you know, hopefully they want you in their life. But parking yourself in someone's life and, and doing life with them, that's hard. Do you ever enter the world of a non-Christian? But it's so much easier also than you think because it's, you're not, it's not your job to save them. You know, they're not going to be saved by your, your wittiness or your intellect. They're going to be saved by the Holy Spirit. You enter their life, love them. That might mean not doing certain things. It might mean doing certain things, only things that, of course, you would be free in Christ to do. But it means loving them that way. And that can be hard. But here's the easy part. It's up to God to save. You just love. Do you enter the world of non-Christians? And third, and lastly, do you lay down your preferences in the church? Do you lay down your preferences in the church? We all have preferences. I say this because I do believe that, that believing Jewish people were part of the audience that the church in Jerusalem wanted these Gentile converts to respect. They had a heart for their weaker Jewish background believers who would have struggled with these Gentile converts flaunting their Christian liberty. And so at least for a season, the church in Jerusalem says, hold on, don't overdo it. You're not under law but under grace, but don't abuse the freedom that you have. Be a blessing even to your, your Jewish believing friends. Do you lay down your preferences in the church? We all have preferences and Part of radical love is putting your preferences to death. Recognize it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ, about honoring him, about loving our neighbors, even our Christian neighbors. So when was the last time you laid down your preferences in this church? 
preferences come in all shapes and sizes, you may prefer old hymns to contemporary ones. You may prefer guitar to organ. You may prefer sitting in this service rather than ever helping with the kids. You may prefer unwinding on a Thursday night instead of sitting down with a brother or sister in need. Mount Vernon, please know that even as I say this to you, I am super encouraged by this particular local church and the ways I see you laying down your preferences for one another. Believe it or not, if you're visiting with us, it's no small thing to have a blended service the way we do. It may seem really small, but when we're going back and forth between like Keith Getty and Fanny Crosby, like for us, that's kind of a big deal. You know, not like like super amazing, but like pretty close. Right? When we got one Sunday morning, we've got Sovereign Grace being sung and the organ being rocked out by, by Mike. That's kind of a big deal. And what we're saying is we're willing to offend all of you in the same service. <laughs> like we're totally happy to do that because of passages like this where it just seems like being a Christian is not finding my niche in evangelical Atlanta. Like it seems like non-Christians can do that. But if you're a Christian, it's like where can I go and find the word being taught Right? The word being, the Lord being exalted. And frankly, my musical tastes, just, they really aren't that important. Just like one example. And I just want to commend, I'm not lambasting you. I'm just, I'm commending you for that. Because I, I hardly, didn't say never, but hardly hear any criticism about that. Not that we couldn't do it better. And last week, I was talking to a younger brother who I found out had spent one evening uh, with a, a homebound, just sick member, just reading the Bible and praying. This younger brother's not a pastor, not a deacon, just loves the Lord. And I found out he's got a young family who needs him at home. But he and his wife concluded this was a good use of his time. And I want to commend you for that. That's laying down your preferences to serve somebody else. And that's kind of what church life is, right? It's like a thousand and one tiny little dying to selves to love people who aren't entirely like you. Ed Clowney was a Bible teacher who wrote a book on the church. And appropriately, he made sure there was a section on love. I'm going to end with this. The new life in Christ is a life of love. Strong, sacrificial love. Cultivating such love requires practice, but it must flow from the deepest spring of devotion to Christ. More the fruit of prayer than programs. It is gained in obedience as the church serves the prisoner and the outcast, the lonely and the friendless. To be like Jesus then is to follow in the way of the cross, in the life of sacrificial love. Such righteousness is not reserved for a few world-class saints. It is the calling of every believer. Heavenly Father, we know that that's our calling, to live with radical love toward unbelievers and believers alike. We confess that there are so many ways that we fall short, but we come rejoicing in the gospel of Jesus Christ 
able to identify ways that you have grown us both as a congregation and as individual saints within the congregation. Keep us from being complacent. Keep us from cold hearts toward the people who might live right across the street or who might sit at the end of the pew that we frequent. Keep us from being so concerned about ourselves that we neglect to think about how others are. Father, it seems so simple, and it's been said for generations, but Lord, your word is so true. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in Christ, that is our aim. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.